And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I love Luke chapter 12. I love it. I don't know if you're anything like me. Fear, worry, anxiety. That's a, that's a regular routine. I'm probably dealing with fear, worry, and anxiety on a monthly, if not weekly, basis. And oh, by the way, Jesus' disciples aren't a whole lot different. Jesus' disciples are not immune from fear. They're not immune from worry. They're not immune from anxiety. They, uh, they struggle with these things too. And so what Jesus is going to do for his disciples in this passage is he's going to show them something bigger than that fear, worry, and anxiety that they're dealing with on a regular basis. And he begins. First thing. He says, consider the ravens. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor do they reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Ravens, they don't sow and reap. I don't know if you knew that. They're not really big into sowing and reaping. But you know who, who is? Farmers. In an agricultural society, first century, farmers. They do sowing and reaping. You sow in the spring, you reap in the autumn, and then after that, you can put it in a storehouse or a barn for safekeepings. Or, another way, you go and you work a 40-hour work week or part-time job or whatever, right? And you work all week for that paycheck. And then you, maybe you don't put it in a storehouse or a barn, but you put it in a checking or a savings account. 401k, Roth IRA, whatever is your thing, okay? Now, this isn't a call to apathy, like, well, 
God takes care of the ravens, so I just, you know, I can kick back, don't need to do anything. No, no, I think there's wisdom in, in, the, in, the, in the one who sows and reaps, puts it in his storehouse and barn. There's certainly, I think, wisdom and prudence in that. But the point is, is that the ravens somehow manage fine. Somehow they have enough food. God takes care of the birds. He feeds the birds. And then he ends and he says, oh, by the way, you're more valuable than the birds. So it stands to reason I got you. I got you. He's got you. Despite the fear, despite the anxiety, despite the worry, where's that money going to come from? How in the world am I going to pull my grade up? I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for things to take off at work. He takes care of the birds. The birds are less valuable than you. So it stands to reason he's, he's got you. He's got you. Well, he continues. And he says, verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So if I try really, really hard, I just all that worry, all that anxiety, all that stress, can it add extra time to my life? Of course, the assumed answer is no. It can't. Worry cannot prolong your life. Anxiety cannot prolong your life. Fear cannot prolong your life. Can't add any extra additional time. Worry is futile. It doesn't bring about anything good. It doesn't bring about anything that's helpful. Right? It's like the one time this guy came, came over to me years ago. He's like, hey, that girl over there. You know if she's single? Which girl? That girl right there? No, that's my wife. She's not single. <laughs> silly, right? So is worry, right? It's silly. It's pointless. Very pointless. And that, that's the point the author's trying to make here. Can't even add extra time to your life, and yet so many of us spend so much time being so stressed out with our anxiety just off the chart. Even though it's pointless. If then, verse 26, you are not able to do as small a thing as that, that being adding extra time to your lifespan, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Why do you keep being anxious about just about everything going on in your life? Why? Well, that is the question. Worry is pointless. Can't even add extra time to our lifespan. Worry is silly. Right? I don't if you imagine for a second where you'll be 20,000 years from now. Some of you are like, I don't even know where I'm going to be like two hours from now. Just imagine. 20,000 years from now. Imagine how silly you're going to feel worrying about all the things going on in your life right now in this moment. 20,000 years from now, you're going to feel pretty silly about all the time you spent worrying in the here and in the now. Of course, that's why he says in the next verse, well, then why do you do it, right? 
If you can't do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Next, verse 27, he says, Consider the lilies. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. Little lilies. My mom lives out in the greater Olympia area of Washington State. Lake St. Clair is near her house. Grew up going there, and uh, there, Lake St. Clair has lots of little lilies just hanging out. Certain times of the year, they'll have little blossoms, little flowers. They're just lilies. That's all they are. Like, these beautiful decorations of nature look awesome. Like, they don't even have to try, and it's not because it's always a good time. It's just because they're lilies. That's it. They make no effort to grow. They have no part in designing or even coloring themselves. And they look pretty good. You might say how it's an indictment of our day and how much we spend, how much time we spend, how much money we spend, how much effort we spend in our appearance, in in dressing ourselves. Many people, they've made a, 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 a God out of fashion Shamelessly wasting money on expensive clothes they will wear but a few times. And like the birds who neither sow nor reap, then, oh, by the way, you've got the lilies. I mean, they're not even trying to look fly. They're just lilies. And Solomon, he can't compare. Despite all his wealth, despite all his power, despite all his resources, he can't compare. The lilies do just fine. Now, some people will, they, some people will be like, see, Joe, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so concerned about how we look, right? I am like, and go very much the, the extreme on this, right? This is the person who's like, see, I am so, like, clothes are optional. Like, hashtag clothes are optional. And I'm like, no, like, no, clothes are good, right? I wouldn't, you go far to any extreme and, and you'll tip the boat over, right? No, I do think we should care how we look, So this is not an anti-looking-nice verse in the Bible. That's not what it's saying by any means whatsoever. But what it is saying is there are some of us who maybe do make a God out of appearance or allow our anxiety and fear and worry based on, do I have the right clothes? Or what will other people think you know, they, they look at me. And once again, nothing wrong, I think, with looking presentable. But this takes it to an ex- extreme front. Uh, case in point, when I was in high school, and I, I get it, high school can be challenging. Some of you guys went to high school? Yeah? Gotcha. You know what I mean? Remember one day, it was 10th or 11th grade, get up, morning routine, back when I used to put stuff in my hair. Um go in the bathroom, sitting there, got the mirror in front of me, and I used to always put this just real generic gel, and I get my hair to do this little swoosh, wave, whoosh. I just, I know those are sound effects that I'm making that doesn't really help describe it, but I think you, that's, 
That's what I would do. It would just kind of pop up. And I sat there one morning, and I just couldn't get my hair to do the thing that I wanted to do. And I was so upset. I was so stressed out that my hair was not doing the thing that I wanted to do. That I was just like, I am not going to school today. That's probably what Jesus is thinking about, talking about, right? Where worry about our appearance, like, causes such anxiety in our lives, like, literally in that case of my own life, like, I was literally paralyzed by fear. What are people going to think if I go to school and they don't see my hair having that little cool swoosh in it? It's, right? It's silly, right? I, gave the, I said 20,000 years from now, man, you just... A few years from now, you think about how silly that was. And then you got lilies, right? Beautiful decorations of nature. They don't even have to try. They're just awesome. Solomon, all his wealth, power, resources, he just can't match up. Lilies do fine just on their own. He takes care of the lilies. Lilies are less valuable than birds. He feeds the birds. Birds are less valuable than you. So it stands to reason he's got you. He's got you. Let's look further. Here's what he says next. Verse 28. But if God so clothes the, the grass which is alive in the field today... And, and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Grass. It's kind of insignificant. Like, I don't know, cows eat the grass? You might mow the grass. Okay? Um, it's just grass. And it would have been also insignificant at this day and age in the first century. Israel... Wood would be a, kind of scarce. And so if you wanted to preheat your oven to 350 degrees, you know what you do? You wouldn't throw wood in there. You'd throw grass in there, which is why it has the reference, the grass being thrown into the oven. That's what they would actually do. When it cooks something, well, you throw grass in there. It showcases here the insignificance of grass, and yet he takes care of the grass. It's just grass. It's less valuable than lilies. He, he clothes the lilies. They're less valuable than birds. He feeds the birds. They're less valuable than you, so it, it stands to reason he's got you. You don't have to be paralyzed by fear. You don't have to be paralyzed by anxiety or worry when it comes knocking on your door. And do not seek, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So here's the challenge, because there is a challenge. I didn't say this was easy. The challenge is the world. And the world is pulling you in a million different directions. 
It's saying, find your happiness, find your joy, find your security in everything other than Christ. You're worried about not having food? It's okay. Here's the world solution. Get more food. You're worried about not having the right clothes? No problem. You just go get the right clothes. You're worried about being lonely? Oh, that's problem solved. You just go get a relationship. You're worried about not having money? No problem. You go and get more money. That'll fix the problem. This is where I... I love to especially quote John Piper here when he says how the devil is mainly about good things. Such a strange statement, I suppose, if you're hearing it for the first time. The devil is mainly about good things. You say, that's kind of strange. Keep going. Why? Because bad things are super obvious, right? You can see the bad things a mile away. Oh, look, there's a tornado. That's a bad thing. No, he's much more clever and crafty than that. You see, the devil is mainly about the good things to keep you from the best things. And if the devil can get at your faith by giving you that money or relationship, yeah, he'll do that. He'll do that. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, your father, in verse 30, he knows that you need these things. Like, it's not a surprise to him. He knows. And he's saying, because your father knows, understand that there's something better. There's something better. The whole world is chasing after these things. I'm trying to get you to buy into this, that this will fix everything. And he says, Father knows, not only that, but change your priorities, right? Seek the kingdom, seek Christ, and these things will be added to you. I th- the phrase that comes to mind right now is Christian hedonism. Perhaps a foreign phrase, unless you've read John Piper's book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, in which case you're you're a little bit more in the loop. But understand, hedonism in the old Greek sense would suggest that whatever brings you the most pleasure in life that is the highest good, regardless of its morals. So whatever makes you, brings you, the most pleasure, doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, that's the highest good. Christian hedonism takes that idea, flips it on its end, and says, Christ is better. He is better. He is more satisfying. Therefore, you ought to, as vehemently as you can, pursue Christ. This gets at the, the essence, right, of this instructions from Christ. The world's chasing after these things. Your father knows what you need. Don't buy into this scheme. Seek the kingdom. Or another way to say it from the 1647 Shorter Westminster Catechism. Another way to explain this idea of Christian hedonism. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's on the front of every week. That little phrase right there. Yeah, you can look at it right now. It gives me a chance to drink a water. For the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. 
That's another way to say this. The chief end of man. What is the chief end of man, right? You don't need to read a purpose-driven life to figure out what your chief end is. I mean, you can if you want to, but that's it, right? If I can be as concise as possible. The chief end of man, glorify God. How? By enjoying Him forever. And that's kind of a strange way when you think about it, right? Maybe you enjoy your significant other. Maybe you enjoy your car, your toys, your hobbies. You enjoy lots of things. But when you take that word and we talk about, like, God, do we enjoy Him? Maybe that's a strange way you've ever thought about it before, but it's important. You see, the reason it's important is because we glorify what we enjoy. What's the best way to glorify God? Well, the best way to glorify God is when we enjoy God. Think of it like this, right? Somebody is on social media. They're taking pictures of their new significant other, right? They're taking pictures of their new car or their new house or whatever. You see it. You've seen it enough, right? They're taking pictures of their plate of food. I don't know why. They just do it. You glorify, you make much of the things that bring you the greatest joy and happiness. That's why it's 100% true to say, for the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's it. Right, that's, that's the point. The world is chasing after all these things, Jesus says, and He says, find it in me. Come to me. And it's when we do that we glorify him. And these things, oh, by the way, let me just real quick disclosure, they're not inherently wrong things. Things I've listed, they're not inherently wrong. But you see, they become wrong. They become sinful when we try to use them. We chase after them to fix that void that only Jesus can fill, that only Jesus can fix. That's why he says, Don't buy into it. Your father already knows what you need. Okay, I get it. You're stressed out. Father already knows what you need. Shift your priorities. Seek the kingdom. So, we come to the apex verse. In my opinion. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what I love about Jesus. So many things, but I love this about Jesus. Um, he doesn't try to give him cheap, like, cheap garbage Christian advice. And some people, I think it comes from a really good heart, but also others it comes from just biblical illiteracy. Maybe there's been a time where you've been on the receiving end of this. You're, you're anxious, worried, whatever. Like, you qualify for hearing this. And a friend comes to you, and they're basically like, just have more faith, or just don't worry. Not bad advice, just incomplete advice, right? Um, And I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't do that here. I said from the very beginning, Jesus' goal in trying to help his disciples deal with fear, worry, and anxiety is to show them something bigger, namely who their God is. And we're going to see that here. He knows his disciples are prone to these things, just as we are. And so he says, fear not, little flock. Which is strange at first glance, because, well, he's talking to his disciples, and he just called them a flock. Work with me, all right? A flock, what is a flock? A flock is sheep, 
And what are sheep? They're small, insignificant, sometimes foolish at times. Gotcha. Why does he call them little flock? He calls them little flock because it's true. It's the nature of why they're so afraid. See, when you feel strong and powerful and in charge, you don't feel afraid. Which is why he doesn't say, fear not little Tyrannosaurus Rex, because that really wouldn't make sense in this passage. He says, fear not little flock, because it is the nature of why they are afraid in the first place. But there's an implication there, and the implication is this. If they're sheep, what does it make him? Shepherd, dare we say. What are shepherds? But shepherds, shepherds know. Shepherds, shepherds know. Shepherds know the, the anxiety that some of you are feeling right now, the fear, the worry that's been on your heart the last month. Shepherds know. He knows what you're dealing with right now. But it doesn't end there. As I said at the beginning, his goal is to show his disciples something bigger than their fear, worry, and anxiety. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's a second observation. And the second observation is that you have a Father. And I realize sometimes this is lost on some of us, who maybe we didn't have the greatest example of a Father. Maybe your Father's not walking with the Lord. That's just my Father. Or your Father was mean or cruel or abusive physically, sexually, emotionally, whatever, right? It's hard sometimes. That's not our Heavenly Father. He's a, he's a good Father. Some of you, growing up, like your relationship with your dad was one where you just felt like you had to walk around on eggshells because you never knew, is dad going to be in a good mood or is he going to be in a bad mood? Am I going to set him off? And look what it says. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not trade, give. Not sell, give. It's his good pleasure. Good pleasure. Good pleasure, right? It's his good pleasure. It makes his day to do this. Like it pumps him up. And uh, he doesn't give cheap gifts. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, he's given to his disciples the greatest thing he could possibly give to them. There's no better gift. And it wasn't a cheap gift gift. It came at a great price. It cost his son his life, his only son, his life on the cross for our sins. So you've, you've got a shepherd who knows your challenges. You've got a father who loves to give to you. And wait, for your father's your pleasure to give you the kingdom. Third observation, implication, right? If there's a kingdom, there must be a king. And what are kings? Kings are strong. Kings are powerful. Kings are authoritative. Kings can make things happen. And that's really good news for the anxiety-prone, fearful little flock. You have a shepherd who knows your challenges. You have a father who loves to give to you at great cost to his only son. And you have a king who can make things happen. Therefore, no fear.
You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be paralyzed by worry and anxiety. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When I first read this, I thought, well, this seems very disconnected. It seemed like we just went from talking about fear, anxiety, and worry to generosity and giving. I don't even know why this is a part of his instructions here. It's here that Jesus describes two types of treasure. Two types of treasure. Temporary and eternal. The temporary treasure is characterized by its ability to grow old, to fail, to be stolen, to be destroyed. The eternal treasure is characterized by the fact that it's eternal. And the way in which you, I'll put in air quotes, get Maybe I shouldn't use the word get, lest it convey um, earning something, right? Can't earn this. But rather, the way in which you get, or better word, the way in which you give evidence that you have this eternal treasure is by being the sort of person that is characterized by generosity, by being the sort of person that is characterized by our Father that we see in verse 32. Remember, the one who loves to give to us, it makes his day to give to us. See, we give evidence of the type of treasure we have when we are generous like our Father. And and let me be clear. Really, really want to be clear here. It is not wrong to have things or stuff or relationships, not wrong. It just, uh, it becomes wrong when we hold on to them so tightly that we're unable to be the sort of generous person. So if, if, if God gives you a relationship or a car or a house or a computer or a toy, Whatever, okay? Just be the person that holds on to it like this with your hands open. Okay? Just be that person. You see, uh, God gives us these things. God gives us houses and cars and toys and computers and relationships so that we may live with them in such a way that it is clear to the world that they aren't our treasure. Christ is. That someone could say, man, Joe Decorian loves his wife, but he loves Christ more. Joe Decorian loves his houses, but man, he loves Christ more, or his car, or whatever. Just be that type of person. That there would be no doubt to your colleagues, especially unsaved friends and family. Yeah, they love X, Y, and Z, but man, that person really loves Jesus. Just be that person, the person that holds on to the things that God has given them open-handedly. 
But that's the challenge. Remember I said when I first read this, it seemed very disconnected. Like I thought we were talking about fear, anxiety, and worry. Oh, we are. You see, in our desire to flee from worry, anxiety, and fear, what are proclivity do we have? Well, we have the proclivity to be like the nations we read about earlier who are chasing after all these things, who are looking for all these things to complete them, to bring them satisfaction, to bring them security. So what happens is, is that's our natural proclivity. And we become, in those moments, reluctant to be the generous person that Jesus wants us to be. And as a result, we hold too tightly to these things because we're afraid. We're afraid of not having them. What does he say at the end here? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Not wrong to hold on to these things, but it becomes wrong when we hold on to them like this with a vice grip and we just don't let them go. And that's the danger, right? Because I'm afraid. I'm so afraid of being lonely. And I have a relationship right now. Or a friend or whatever. And I'm just so scared, right? And I, and I know I should be holding on to that relationship open-handedly like this. But I'm so afraid because if they just blow away, right? Then I go back to being lonely. And I hate how I feel when I'm lonely. And so I, I'm holding on to it with a vice grip. Or... What happens if something comes up and I need a dollar? I need money. And I don't have that money. What happens then? Not wrong to have money. It just becomes wrong when we hold on to it so tightly, right? And we hold on to it so tightly because we're afraid. We're so scared. Reminds you of the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Rabbi, what must I do to enter the kingdom of, of heaven? Tells a rich young ruler, X, Y, and Z. Rich young ruler, done all those. Check. Jesus being Jesus, which is always good. Then, then knowing the man's heart, knowing what the man really, really loves. Knowing that the man is incredibly wealthy. Says, give everything that you have away and come and follow me. And the man goes away very, very sad because he had great wealth. To that man, it was his wealth that he loved so much. To someone else, it might be a relationship. To someone else, it might be whatever, right? Whatever that you struggle so hard to to hold open-handedly and your just natural proclivity is vice grip. Because I'm so terrified what will happen if if I let go. It might leave. The person might leave. That dollar might leave. Whatever. But I would tell you, Christian, Christian, you have to let it go. You, you have to let it go. Why? Verse 34, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why I said, from the very beginning. The way you give evidence 
that you're the type of person that has this eternal treasure is by being characterized by the generosity of your Father who loves to give to you. And that should be an encouragement to you, especially if you struggle holding things like this. That should be a real encouragement. C.S. Lewis, he would say it like this, we're like kids in the ghetto making mud pies. There's a picture, right? Children playing in the ghetto, in a rough neighborhood, making mud pies. And he says, they have no idea what it means to take a holiday out at sea. In other words, they are far too easily pleased. The world is far too easily pleased. And so there's those kids, right? They're, they're making their mud pies, their mud pies, and they're... And they're could be toys or cars or sex or relationships or money. And they are just so happy and so content. And then you come along and you say, Hey, uh, would you like to take a seven-day, seven-night Mediterranean cruise? Or would you like to keep playing there in the mud? That's why Lewis says they're far too easily pleased. They're so easily satisfied. It's like, wouldn't you rather have the seven-night, seven-day Mediterranean cruise? I mean... Maybe you're not a cruise person, but if you had to compare being on a seven-day, seven-night Mediterranean cruise versus just playing in the mud, yeah, you take the cruise. And the thing is, is that we struggle holding things like this. I think we struggle sometimes because, because of unbelief. You say unbelief. I say, yes, unbelief. You see, it's unbelief in the promises of God that is the root of anxiety which in turn is the root of so many other sins. You struggle with fear, worry, and anxiety, you might have an unbelief issue. Jesus does not call us to give up something of greater worth for something of lesser worth. You're not getting a bad deal. I love getting good deals. You're not getting a bad deal. He does not call you to give up something of greater worth for something of lesser worth. Like if I, if I, if I hold on to these things like this, what happens if they're taken away? You're still getting a good deal if you think of it in terms like that. Why? Because He's already given to you the greatest thing He could give to you. There is nothing better. He can't top it, right? When He gave you the kingdom to enter in and access the King. When He gave you His Son at such a great price, such a great cost. That's why I say unbelief gets at this, right? Unbelief in the promises of God. Do you either believe it or you don't believe it, Christian? That's why I say you have to let it go. Because it reveals what you really love. It reveals what you really treasure more than anything else. No, these things aren't inherently bad things. And if you you are fortunate enough to receive them, just hold them like this. As I said earlier, God gives you relationships, cars, toys, money, whatever, so that you may live with it in such a way that it is clear to the outside world that it is not your treasure. Christ is. Just be that sort of person. Hold on to things open-handedly, like such. 
And you can do that because of who he is. He doesn't give us cheap advice in this story, and I'm so thankful because I hate cheap, crappy, Christianese advice. I hear it, and it just drives me nuts. I'm like, give me Bible, that's what I want. That'll last beyond the, the pastor's jokes when I'm struggling later this week because anxiety and fear is knocking at my door. You have a shepherd who knows. He knows your challenges. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're going through. You've got a father who loves you and he loves to give to you and he has given not cheap gifts. He's given you the very best thing he could possibly give to you, his son, at such a great cost. And oh, by the way, you've got a king who's powerful and authoritative. He can make things happen. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid. Stressed, worried, anxious, don't have to. You remember the promises of God in the story here. He takes care of the grass. We already talked about how insignificant grass is. Grass, it's less valuable than the lilies. He clothes the lilies. They're less valuable than the birds. He feeds the birds. They're less valuable than you. So it stands to reason. He's got you. Hold on to those promises. Christian. That's, uh, that's why I, I memorized Luke 12. I wasn't lying when I said anxiety, f- fear, and worry is something I'm battling with just about every month, let alone every week. I, I memorized this passage so I could preach it to myself. And that's exactly what you should do in those moments when it comes knocking on your door. When you remind yourself of these promises of God. So much of this is rooted in the unbelief of these promises. So much of anxiety, so much of fear, so much of worry is rooted in this sort of unbelief. So how do you counter that with the Word of God? And when your friend is struggling with worry and anxiety, you remind him, right? He takes care of the grass, he takes care of the lilies, he takes care of the birds, stands to reason. He's got you. You don't have to be paralyzed by fear. You don't have to be held captive by worry and anxiety. Jesus' advice here to his disciples is to show them something bigger. To show them more clearly who their God is. Oh, I'm so thankful for Luke 12. Really him. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you. And Jesus, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so, so much for this story. I'm so grateful for these promises, Lord. They're beautiful promises. And I pray, Lord, that we would just hold on to them. Lord, I thank you that, bottom line, We can let things go because you've already given to us the very best thing in the universe. Nothing else can top the gift that was your son on that cross for us. So God, protect us from anxiety. Protect us from worry. Protect us from unbelief in these promises. Point us back to these truths, Lord, when when we start struggling again. Be our anchor. Be our hope. Be our everything 
Be our treasure, Jesus. We love you and we need you. We pray this in your name. Amen.